Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 7 tonight. That's where we're going to be, Acts 7. And we'll pray and get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Stephen, his, uh, his faithfulness, his love for you, um, his wisdom. Just because he followed you, chose to move when you asked him to move, and he was used by you. First martyr, Lord. And uh, we see that you stood up for him, and uh, as he confessed you before men, you confessed him before the Father, and that's a promise you have given to each of us. So I pray that we'd be found faithful, found moving, being used by you, and that we'd be able to see the same thing Stephen sees tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Stephen is the first martyr. He's uh, been called to serve tables, just to take care of the needs of widows. And uh, it's, a, it's a good start. They needed men full of the Holy Spirit. Guys that were going to be kind to these ladies. Guys that were going to be stable. Uh, God's looking for stability. People that have got their walk with him. You know, they figured out what they need to do in life and that he is the only thing and their master passion. And um, they spend their time studying and trying to live their lives as an example to others. And these seven men chosen were those guys. Full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit gifted. And uh, Stephen then moves on from that, uh, probably still doing the meals for wheels for the widows, but has other things. And, and God had began to use him in mightier ways. More signs and wonders were being done by Stephen than others. It just, he stood out. I don't know why that is, except, um, you know, we'd like to say, well, maybe he was more faithful. Maybe he was more in tune with the Lord. Maybe he was more open and available. That, all those things could be true. Um, God doesn't really tell us in his word. It just it says in Stephen, full of faith and power. That's it. Faith is something that we do. That's something that God gives us faith, but we exercise it. And Stephen seemed to have exercised it more than most. Believed God more than most. And as you begin to do that in your life, begin to trust God more and more than most of the people around you, you will begin to stand out. It just is. It's the way it is. And sometimes that's uncomfortable because the times where you'd like to fit in with everybody else, you just can't. And they look at you funny and you look at them funny and there's just no way to avoid that funniness. There isn't. And you've got to decide right then and there, is this the path I want to stay on and continue to move closer and closer to Christ while everybody seems to be content where they are or would you rather fit in? Stephen doesn't even look back. He just keeps moving forward with the Lord. That was one of the things that God spoke to me as I was studying this. and In the last week and a half, anyway, as I've been going over his word and having some quiet times, is that uh, there's a lot of movement with the Lord. He doesn't... Um, when he calls Matthew the tax collector, he doesn't. they don't hang out at the tax collecting table. You know? He just looks at Matthew and says, I want you to follow me. And he gets up and leaves that and begins to follow Jesus. Jesus expects us to follow him. We all know that. I mean, we're followers of Christ. But a lot of Christians who say they're followers of Christ don't act like they're following him at all. They're sitting still, expecting him to sit and watch TV with them or expect to make that 
same trek over to the refrigerator and back to the lounge chair every single day, and there's no movement spiritually. It's just they say they're followers with Christ like it's a, a medallion around their neck, but they're not actually moving with him. The Holy Spirit's in constant motion, in constant action. He is constantly trying... See, the Holy Spirit has a much better perspective than we do. He knows the time is short, and there's a lot of people that aren't going to heaven, and they need to go to heaven, or at least they need to hear the gospel. And so he is busy doing and making Christ famous and being about the Father's business. And when he fills us with the Holy Spirit, and we're born again, and we're followers of Christ, he expects us to be following him in these actions, in these moments, hearing his call and causing us to... Uh, encouraging us anyway to step up and be the hands and feet of Christ in the mouth of the Lord and share the gospel, you know. Stephen is that guy. The other six are probably doing fine. We don't hear much about them. Philip, we do. But Stephen is what I, when you notice these things, the, the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible follows Stephen, not the other six. And you get that argument, who was right, Barnabas or Paul? Paul or Barnabas? They had that splitting of the ways. We're going to read that later on in the book of Acts here, very shortly, as a matter of fact. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Paul, was going to get saved here shortly. We're together at one point, Barnabas really being a friend to Paul, but at one point they split because of a disagreement about bringing a brother along in the ministry or not, and we see that that's taught, and I've taught that also, that, well, it's just, you know, it's just God's way of dividing and getting more and more, you know, ministries going. But the Bible does follow Paul. It doesn't follow Barnabas in that matter. And so I take note of those things. The Bible is very happy with all seven of these guys, but it follows Stephen. And so I pick up on that, and I want to follow Stephen. So what is it about Stephen? He begins to do what God calls him to do, and then God can use him more, and he allows himself to be used more to the point where he's so loud about his faith that he gets that accusation made about him last week. And here's the accusation. You keep saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs. That's the accusation. So they had laid hands on Stephen and brought him before the high priest. It's the same high priest that judged Christ. He's not out of it yet. And he's standing before the hierarchy. And this is exactly what Christ said he would do. When you are brought before kings or before magistrates or before councils like this, I, by the Holy Spirit, will give you the words to speak. And it's always to magnify Christ and not to defend yourself. Always. When, when you get brought before these guys, keep this in mind, Jesus says, it's not about you getting off or being found not guilty. That isn't the issue. It's about you making me known in that audience or in that group. Billy Graham, without fail, and his son too, every time they're on television, Larry King or any place else, he gives out the gospel. Every single time, without fail. We're called to that same exact thing. Stephen is now brought before the council. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the last thing we read last week was when they looked upon him steadfastly, they saw his face as the face of an angel. That's the, 
That's a countenance. That's a, I don't want to say holy glow, but that's kind of hard not to say it that way. There is something about Stephen as he's filled with the Spirit that he just, wow. You know. So that's what they're looking at. So the high priest says, verse 1, are these things so? Now they see and hear two different things. The high priest wants to know, is it true that you're saying all these terrible things about destroying this place and changing our customs? Stephen hears it as, is, or is your message that you're sharing with everybody absolutely true? It's two different things. And so Stephen is going to go, well, yeah, what I'm telling you is absolutely true. And so he's going to tell them. The entire, well, it's a synopsis of Jewish history here. And so there's a lot of reading tonight. It's a very long chapter. So as we're listening to Stephen, as you're listening to me read, Stephen, as he gives his first message, and well, not first, an amazing message, an amazing teaching to these guys, he's not trying to school them. He's trying to help them see it. And so he is not going to read verbatim from text He's going to give it in his own words, and I want us to take note of that. Know the Bible so well that you could sit down with somebody on a park bench and say, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It took him seven days, and he made them in different orders. Now, you don't have to say, and on the first day, you can give them a synopsis, you know? Be able to share that like he does right here. It's, it's good. As he's going through this, as we're reading this, the Bible says here at the end of this chapter, towards the end, right before they get really upset and kill Stephen, spoiler alert, it says that they begin to gnash their teeth. And the idea is it's a progressive thing. So Stephen is giving out his message and he is watching them and their countenance change because they're getting it. They're feeling the guilt. They're feeling the shame. They're feeling the truth of what he's saying. And their faces begin to change. And that's why he switches gears in verse 51. He switches gears in verse 51 and says, you guys always resist the Holy Spirit. He just stops. He says, I can see, he can see it on their face. So here we go. And so here's his answer. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved, from, uh, moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that he would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Quote, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. It's our first break. I'll try to be brief as we go through this because there's a lot to go over. He starts off with the temple that you say I'm going to destroy, the customs of Moses, I want you to know right away, you guys, you Sanhedrin, Paul is sitting there, Saul is sitting there listening to this. He's going to cast his vote against Stephen to be stoned. He's going to actually hold the coats and oversee the stoning of Stephen. That's where Saul is in this whole picture here. So Paul is sitting listening to this message. 
Do you understand that before the temple was built, before Moses was born, before we were even a people group, Abraham had a conversation with our God and had a wonderful relationship with him in Mesopotamia of all places. Not in this place, not in this temple, not in this holy land, but God was moving way before all of this. That's his point. He's trying to teach these guys that God, we, they forget, we live in his creation. God is not now contained in the temple and we must visit him in the temple we live in his world, <laughs> and he's reminding him of that. And in fact, he met him in Mesopotamia, and then Abraham was kind of halfway obedient and took his dad with him. He wasn't supposed to bring his dad with him, but brought his dad with him. And then dad wanted to stop in Haran, so they stopped in Haran. And this is a side note, a special teaching, I guess, outside of what the text is teaching us today about not the importance of the temple, but of, of the Lord and his presence is that my hesitation to obedience of moving with God, of following the Lord, actually doesn't disqualify me, but it does put on hold the blessing attached to it. Abraham was promised a beautiful land for all of his descendants and a place where he can dwell, and God was going to give it to him. But until he got there, it wasn't going to happen. He stopped in Haran, and so God stopped with him in Haran, and we waited. Oh, dad's dead. Okay, now we're going to move again. And we move on. And we can do that. God calls us to do something. He moves us in a direction. And, oh, we're going to go, and, oh, but my parents or but my, you know, my relatives. And then it kind of pauses. Now, you're not disqualified, but it does stop you. It stops the outcome that God had promised. It would have been better for Abraham to actually leave dad behind and just kind of go and be there and get to that place. But he didn't. And so... Stephen reminds them of this. God said this is all going to happen. This was all by, his desire, all by his plan. Verse 8. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Those are our fathers. Um, this is the beginning of our nation. But even now, it's not a nation yet. Verse 9. And the patriarchs becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, being Joseph's brothers, the other eleven, and at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem. Now, that story isn't necessarily about God meeting us wherever. It was Egypt. It wasn't the land of promise. And God was with them, and God was with Joseph. That was more along the lines of, do you remember how our fathers didn't receive Joseph? How they threw him in a pit? And that later on, this same Joseph, the one they threw in the pit, and they didn't receive his authority at that time, ended up being, well, their savior? 
Now they're picking up on these things. This is like the first foreshadowing of what Christ has done. He's reminding them, our fathers weren't that great. Our fathers didn't start off as super obedient to God. That's how we like to think of our heroes, but that's not how they started. But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph, and this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, he's not teaching them anything new. They all know these stories. But when you bring it all together like this, when you kind of sum up how we all started as a people group, a pattern begins to form, very important in a case. In a court case, if you can develop a pattern, I mean, there's other aspects that you want to develop, but he's not trying to defend himself, but he is trying to say that what you're doing and what you've done to Christ, or to Jesus, the Christ, you, we, have a, we have a pattern of doing this. And when you can recognize that pattern in your life, when you can recognize that I've been around this mountain before, there's a lot of deja vu going on in my life, you know? It seems like I've been around this situation before. Once you figure that out, you can stop that, you know? You can break that. You can move. <laughs> well, that's what he's trying to bring up. For 40 years, Moses was brought up in this Egyptian household, being prepared for this very thing, to deliver the people, to bring them out of Egypt, to let them know, this is the time. You've been praying for a deliverer. Satan has reared his head. He is squashing you down with this new king. He is oppressing you. He's killing your babies, which is always demonic. It always comes from Satan, always trying to suppress and stop what's about to take place. So for 40 years, it says, now when the 40 years, when he was that old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. So Moses steps out of the palace from his position and steps down amongst his people and tries to reveal himself as their deliverer. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you do wrong to one another? He who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And so Moses was rejected as your deliverer because he was trying to get you two groups to get along. At the time, he's looking at the Sanhedrin and part of them are Pharisees and part of them are Sadducees. And there's nothing more, nothing better to unite somebody than a common enemy, and Jesus became that enemy, just like here. In that story of Moses, the men were fighting, and one was getting beat down, but they both, when Moses tried to intervene, actually said, you know what, stay out of this, buddy. 
You're not our helper. You're not a deliverer. Get away from us. We know who you are. That's exactly what they did to Christ. And that's exactly what Stephen's trying to get across. And you can see their teeth begin to clinch here. The Sanhedrin and the high priest begin to feel the conviction. They can feel the, the pattern. When 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire on the bush, or in the bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe. And the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Well, where is he standing? It's not where he's supposed to be standing, but wherever God is, is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come and I send, uh, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Now they're really getting it. He didn't need to say that, but he says it anyway. This one that they rejected, you do realize, is the one God sent to be the actual deliverer. They missed it. Now they get it the second time, but they missed it. And... The nation of Israel will have a second shot at believing on Christ for their salvation. They will have their turn. That's what the Great Tribulation is all about. The seven-year period in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, is this very thing right here. God says, now go get those people out. And they'll get their chance to receive him. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Remember that Moses, the one you rejected and then accepted? He's exactly the one, the one that you quote and been waiting for the Messiah to come and said that someone like him would be a prophet like him, would rise up, ringing any bells, guys, you know. This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And he's going to quote Amos here. He's made a big jump here. As Gentiles, we don't really understand this stuff. You know, we're taught from babies not to, not to worship stuff. We know we're not supposed to worship eagles, and we're not supposed to worship buildings, obviously. I mean, you know, this is not the Sistine Chapel. You know, you know we just have we've learned. And so as Gentiles, we kind of know this stuff. They don't. The temple was so valuable to them, so important to them, they would swear by it. It was, it was a holy place. It was a place that if you swore by it or if you swore by the gold in the temple, oh, 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 you better mean what you say, buddy. Can you imagine that? I swear by the sheet steel on the side of this machine shed we're worshiping in. It'll be like, well, that's not really a valuable you know, promise. 
But to them, it was everything. They had made it an idol. And so Stephen's making a big jump here. He's saying they got tired of following Moses too. They got tired of obeying the law. The most important thing God wants from us is faithfulness, to trust him and to obey his word, right? We all know that. I mean, we know that. We talk about that all the time. Obey his word, obey his word. But sometimes that is something we are not interested in, so we bring up and make up in our own lives talismans, I'll say. Little things that ward off evil spirits in our life that are Christian. And and I don't care if you have a, a gold cross around your neck or not, but when it becomes the thing, I don't obey God, but I have a golden cross. Or I don't obey God, but I have a Christian fish on the back of my car. Or I don't obey God, but I attend church. Or I don't obey God, but I have a really big Bible. You know, when those things, the Bible, the cross, the fish, attendance, or whatever it is, become a replacement to just obeying his word, those become idols. Those become exactly what he's talking about here. Um, The temple had become more important than the obedience. They truly committed murder against an innocent man, Jesus Christ, and they were afraid of what to do with the money they used to, to convict him the bribe money they used to get him, they were so spiritual and holy about that money that they couldn't bring it back into the temple. They had to use it to buy some field over there. Their, their, their relationship with God was so messed up, so convoluted. It's the temple. Um, and by any means necessary, protect the temple and protect the idol of religion. And they'd forgotten the relationship. They'd forgotten just to be obedient to God to the point where they would murder to protect their idol. We don't ever go to those extremes for the most part, but um, me reading his word and my quiet time, let's say, or you and your quiet time, and him speaking a verse to you, you know how it kind of jumps off the page, which means I really want you to work on this, God says. I want you to do it now. I want you to obey me now in this. This is something we're working on right now. I want you to do this now. And just because I underlined it and remembered it and posted it on Facebook or whatever, but then I didn't go do it, it's become an idol. It's become a replacement for obedience. I don't care if you underline it. I don't care if you post it. I don't care if you remember this conversation. I just want you to do it, to do it to get rid of those things, to change that part, to go and act in this way, you know, to do evil or to do good or to not do evil. One of the, whatever God spoke to us, the action is far more important than the moment or the underlining of Scripture or any of that. James warns us about that, to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. It becomes a temple to us. It becomes a thing. Well, he warns them about that. Your temples become an idol to you. Now, they understand what he just said. So he quotes Amos to them, and he changes the scripture. He changes the quote. How dare he, right? Let me read it to you. This is how it reads in Amos. Did you you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? The answer is no. You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of your God, uh, rampant. Images which you had made to worship, 
I will carry you away beyond Damascus, is what it says, but he says Babylon here. Now, did he make a mistake and misquote it? Amos was talking to the northern tribes, and so it was Damascus that they were worried about. Stephen's talking to the southern area with Jerusalem and all that, and so he switches to Babylon because that's what they're thinking. He brings the text to life for them, you see. He's not misquoting it. He changes it because I'm, 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 if I were just to say you don't want to be carried away to Babylon, we, we don't understand that. You don't want to be carried away to Afghanistan, do you? You know, kind of, oh, I, don't know, I know what that means. I understand that. It's current, relevant, and that's what he's doing. He's bringing it out. And they're getting it, unfortunately. They're getting it, but they're not getting it. Their reaction is so far from what it should be. Um, it truly brings to life that the Word of God, what Stephen is doing right here, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it truly brings a, an emotional reaction one way or the other. There really isn't an in-between. You're either super convicted and humble and broken before the Lord, or you're super convicted and you reject it and you become vicious. It's one of the two. You can imagine what they're going to do. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instruct, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it, in turn also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. Reminding them, remember how God was happy with the tent? That the tent was God's idea? That the tent was the one that was patterned after what God had showed Moses on the mountain? Remember the tent, everybody? And see, everybody thought the temple was so much better than the tent. They thought, yeah, well, I remember the tent. Oh, so embarrassing. I mean, the rest of the world had beautiful temples to their God, and we had this tent. I mean, it's so low. I mean, it's badger skins, you know, kind of thing. Stephen's reminding them, you do understand that was God's idea. That was God's plan. That was God's purposes. The temple, that was David's. David was the one that said, God, I want to build you a house. I feel guilty about living in this mansion. I want to build you this tremendous, beautiful house. And in verse 48, Stephen reminds them of God's response to that. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You can't build a house big enough, David, was the answer. And of course, David was totally humbled by that. He's like, oh, you're right, I know that. And God was so gracious and says, oh, it's okay. I mean, I know you want to build, I know, I know your heart, I understand your heart. So yeah, let's, let's make a temple. I'll let your son build it. Solomon will be able to build it and all that. If that's what you guys want to do, I appreciate it you know, kind of thing. And he, he does. God's very gracious about it. Stephen's trying to remind them, I'm not changing anything. By destroying this temple or saying that it's going to be destroyed, which it will be destroyed, just by prophesying that doesn't mean that I'm committing heresy or anything. It, it was never God's idea to go back to a tent, to go back to just having God in our hearts, like Abraham, who never had a tabernacle, is to go back to the roots, is to go back to the way God wanted it. He always wanted a personal relationship with us. Our faith as Gentiles is the same as Abraham's faith. That's, it, it trumps the law. It trumps 
Moses, it trumps Judaism. It's, it's way before we had a relationship with God like Abraham does. That's our faith. Way before buildings and, and all. And Stephen's saying, I'm not doing anything wrong here by talking about this. And it's true, it is going to be destroyed, but that doesn't mean we're hopeless. We have God, which is always the way it's supposed to be. It always was supposed to be that way. Now, he sees their faces changing, and you can see him switch here in verse 51. He's looking at them, and they're gritting their teeth, and they're mad, and they're not receiving it. And Oh, man, I can identify with that. If you ever stood up here (laughs) on a Sunday morning, it's such a mix of responses. Now, I don't expect, I don't, some people just have that face. You know how they say, my resting face. I'm a happy guy, but your resting face. What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm totally happy. Okay. Sure. You know, and they are. They just relax. There's, but man, on Sunday mornings, there'll be some that are just, And they're talking like, like, I don't see him over there. I mean, it's not a big room. <laughs> you know, and I can see it. I'm just like, okay, uh, you know, you guys are happy over here. They're upset with what I'm saying over here, you know. And then I see, you know, oh, you know. And I just, it's like that. And you can tell there's something working. Now, some people are just like, oh, Jesus is so good. The word of God just touching my life tonight. The other person's going, Jesus is just horrible. It's touching my life tonight. It's like, it's the same word. And Stephen is watching these guys, and he can see that countenance. He can see the rage, that gray face, that the color flush out of, you know, just come out of their face. So he switches gears. Now, this is amazing. Knowing that your life is in their hands, knowing that they're not receiving the message you're giving them, you could switch gears and say, but you know, I understand, and I know where you're at. And you know what? God's gracious and loving, and he wants to, he, he really wants to cut your heart. And so if you don't understand today, maybe we could meet tomorrow and talk again. I could live another day. You know, Stephen could have gone that route. He doesn't. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, exclamation points. So he starts yelling at these guys. I'd love to yell right now, but I'd spike the mic and we'd all get feedback. But that's how it was. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hearty. He matches their reaction. You're mad at me? And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You have no idea how upset God is at you for rejecting his salvation. You guys are so lost. You're so going to hell. God knows that. You're so helpless. He sends his only son, and you take the one who's going to save you from your own stupidity, from your own rebellion, and you kill him? Not happy, you know? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, and that is a direct quote of Deuteronomy 10.16, or at least he's pointing him to Deuteronomy 10.16, where it says you guys have to be You have to circumcise your heart. You have to stop being stiff-necked. Deuteronomy, God was still trying to teach you way back then. He started, stop being stiff-necked. Circumcise the flesh of your hearts. I don't care about the part I told you to cut off. Is that graphic enough for you? I'm worried about your hearts. 
I want you to remove the flesh of your hearts. I want you to work on the inward parts of the man. I want you to do the things. I want you to change your, your heart towards me and towards being obedient to God. And to this day, Stephen says, that's why 51 stands out so much. You're still stiff-necked and you're still uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You can't hear. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. You resisted Joseph, you resisted Moses, you resisted every single prophet that ever came to tell you you're doing something wrong and to straighten up and fly right. You hated them all, you killed them all, and you're doing it again. It's not going to end well for Stephen, but good for him, right? I think everybody wonders, I don't know how I'd do if I was under persecution, if I'd be a martyr or not, if I'd really stand up for the faith. I don't know that Stephen knew that either. He just... When it comes to, are you going to lie? Are you going to, are you going to not say what you believe? Or are you just going to say the truth and say what you believe and whatever comes, comes? When you're full of the Holy Spirit, you'll be all right. You're going to be okay. What if they put a gun to my head and said, renounce Christ? You won't. If you love Jesus and you're a born-again believer, you won't. You'll look him in the eye. You'll say, hold on, you're not centered here. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. I mean, it'll probably go, that'll be the last thing you say, but you ever watch those videos where they're, they're making fun of the martial arts guys that the guy's in the hand, he, he does this thing and flips the gun out of his hand. He goes, you know, and they're practicing this. And so some guy's watching, he goes, okay, okay. And he flips the gun. All of a sudden he's in heaven. He goes, oh man, it didn't work. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, that's how it'll be. Renounce Christ. No. You know, or you won't even hear that but you'll be in heaven and the, you'll close your eyes here and you'll wake up and there he is. And he'll be standing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Nice. In the last days, there's going to be a ton of martyrs, ton of martyrs. And I smile because you read about Stephen and if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're like, man, just, I kind of want, I, I don't want the opportunity, but I do. I want the opportunity. I don't wish it upon myself, but I kind of wish it upon myself, you know? That's a great place to be in your heart. That's a great place to be because he means that much to you. You stiff neck and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the one, uh, those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Bam. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. That's their response. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 37, just a few chapters back. It's really our only cross-reference tonight. But I want to make you, or, you know, not, not make you, you get to, turn to. Peter just gets done with his message. In verse 37 of chapter 2, same book. Now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the response of God's word and people. There'll be some that gnash the teeth. There are some that are like, what do I need to do to get right with God tonight, right now? And you can't do anything about that. 
You didn't do it wrong. You didn't say it wrong. You gave out the gospel. Some will gnash their teeth at you. Some want to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's just how it is. You can't change that reaction. Only they can. That's up to them. These guys' response was they're cut to the heart and they gnash their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, every other place in Scripture, we see Jesus seated at the right hand of God, right? He's always seated because his work is finished at the cross. He says, it is finished, so he sits. But when Stephen sees it, Stephen is the first believer to follow Christ into death or into life. First one. And so Jesus is the first one. He always has to be the first in everything, and he's the first to ascend into heaven, and he sees number two coming up. Now, there are other believers up there. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't, he's the first martyr, the first person who's going to die for his faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is standing there. And he tells us that, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. That's exactly what's happening here. He's, he's receiving Stephen. I can see him. Now, what a blessing that is for him. Because it hasn't happened yet. The rocks aren't being thrown. They haven't grabbed him yet. So when he says this to them, they cry out with a loud voice and stop their ears. They plug their ears. And they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now the word uh, ran at him is, is used one other time in scripture. And that's when the swine are running into the sea. Gives you an idea of what this mob looked like as those crazy demon-possessed pork bellies went flying off into the sea. That's what these guys do. They plug their ears and they go running at them with their teeth gnashing. Interesting. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen. As he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. God always talks about believers when they die or they leave this world as not dying but falling asleep. And he's not saying we have soul sleep. He's saying no, because the believer never dies. We just leave this place and transition into heaven. There is no death waiting for us. We just go right to everlasting life. We go from life to everlasting life. There is no death. They just leave this world behind. Now, after this, next week we'll start in verse 1. Now, Saul was consenting to his death. You can. That's a hard thing to listen to, a teaching like that. Paul's not dumb. Paul is zealous for the Lord. He's just zealous in the wrong way. His ignorance. He thinks being zealous for God because of the temple, because being a part of the Sanhedrin, because he'd been raised to know that religion was everything and to be high up in religion is everything. To see this group of people so joyful, so happy, so fulfilled, so content, just following this fisherman around, following this, this guy from Nazareth, irked him. He's trying that. He wants that. Most people do. Most people caught up in religion really truly want to have that peace in their heart. They want that fellowship with God. 
and they just go through it the wrong way. And when they see believers like you and I that are just born-again believers that absolutely love Christ, and he speaks to us, and we speak to him, we pray, and we have time in his word, there's a jealousy now that can either spark them like Nicodemus or like Joseph of Arimathea to come out of it and to follow Christ and say, you know what, I've been to the top and there ain't nothing there for me in this religion thing. I'm following Christ because there's joy there. Or you can end up like Saul, whose response is, maybe if I kill and squash this movement, I'll have everything that I've ever wanted in religion. Maybe I'm just not zealous enough. They get, it's pretty frothy in the mouth about it. Saul is consenting to the death, and he, it says, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they all scattered. I mean, it's never been anything. After the stoning of Stephen... A lot of things happened. The entire church realized, oh, we aren't always going to get a lot out of prison. But so far, that's all. We're not only just going to get beat. Some of us are going to die. And that's a big deal to realize that, oh, Jesus meant everything he said. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And so far, all they've had is some prison time and a, a beating. And now Stephen's the first martyr. That's the guy... Wasn't he just taking care of widows? He's so nice. He's the nicest guy I know. He's the most joyful guy I know. They killed him? Yeah, Saul did it. Saul's holding the coats. He's got papers now. He's got papers from the Sanhedrin that says he can persecute anybody that follows Jesus. And he's starting. He's going door to door. It's a big deal. A lot happens here. Now, Saul is going to get touched by God. It's going to take a few chapters here, but God finally gets a hold of Saul and changes his name to Paul. Gets a hold of him, but he is fuming and he is stewing over this message he just heard. He's stewing and fuming over the fact that he looked at this guy and he had the face of an angel. Why aren't you scared? Why aren't we putting fear into you? What were his last words, Paul says? Don't charge them with this sin? That's eating Paul up. He can't do anything about it, but try to lash out, and it's going to come to an end. When you're ministering to people in the love of Christ, and they reject, and they hate, and they gnash their teeth, stay in that place where you have that face of an angel, where you're still under the power of the Holy Spirit, where you're not charging them with the sin, and you're not taking it personally. Don't take it personally. It's directed towards Christ. It's directed towards salvation. It's directed towards the fact that they're not okay by themselves, that they actually need help, that they are in desperate need of a Savior, and that Christianity is the only way, truth, and life. You cannot go to the Father without the Son. There's no entrance into heaven without Him. That bothers people. But that's not your fault. That's God's plan. And all you're doing is telling them God's plan. Don't take it personal. Don't charge them with the sin. God's working on them. And you never know when they're going to come back to you. Saul has to live with this moment right here the rest of his life. And this moment right here, what Stephen does, what Stephen cries out at this time, is going to actually help Saul, Paul, stay humble, understand his place, understand that he will never match up to Stephen. He'll never be that kind of believer that he's, he's going to serve God the best he can. And boy, doesn't he? Saul writes some pretty good, Paul writes some pretty good books. Thank you for all the epistles, Paul. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your your outreach, your church planting, your uh, leadership training, all the things that he did, all because of what Stephen did right here. Talk Talk about an effective ministry Stephen had. So be encouraged. 
Be encouraged in your ministry, wherever you may be, whatever you may be saying to people, however they may be receiving it, be encouraged in that. And continue. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for Stephen's example to us. Thank you for, he just told the truth. He didn't pull any punches. This world desperately needs to just hear flat out truth. We don't have to be brash. The idea is to explain. It is to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And so we do want to be patient with people. And we do want to help them come to an understanding of what Christ has done for them. And sometimes we have to go clear, clear back to Genesis. Because a lot of people don't even have the basic understanding of God. So, Lord, help us, equip us, give a, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might have that patience, that, that joy throughout the whole process of bringing people to Christ, of leading them to the understanding of the truth, sharing the gospel with them, but explaining it along the way, too, to answer questions, to be, uh, to be available. We want to be those people, God, especially in these last days. We want, to be the, we want to be able to have the answer for people. So help our eyes to be wide open, Lord, for those opportunities. Um, councils, kings, magistrates, wherever you bring us, neighbors, friends, coworkers, whoever you put in front of us, Lord, help us to remember it's not about us defending ourselves or defending our faith even. It's about explaining to them the truth. It's up to them how they receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.